everybody. Welcome to the Thrive Theology podcast, where we love talking about theology and equipping you to live thoughtfully as a Christian. Because as we know, theology isn't just head knowledge, it's actually the study of the heart of God. We are excited today to come back for part two of our Image of God series, and we're thinking it's going to end up being three episodes, but we will see what actually happens. Um, And we are going to be talking about the true image of God, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. We're going to also dip into gender a little bit and how male and female um, interact as the image of God and whether or not they're equally made in the image of God. We are also probably going to get started today into our very first theory of the image of God. We mentioned in our last episode that there was going to be several different theories we were going to be taking a look at, and we will probably start into that today. Last week, we had spent some time looking at how God created us in his image and establishing a biblical um, basis for that standpoint. And then we also took some time to look at the fall and the restoration of of the image of God um, through the salvation of Jesus Christ. So we are going to kind of continue with that conversation and talk about how Jesus is the true image of God. We're going to start by reading Hebrews chapter one, verse three, which says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we like how the NIV phrases it too. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you need a better def, like this is the definition of image of God. And that's exactly what Jesus was. We know that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human. So we know that he's God, but now he is the perfect image bearer of God as well. We see Jesus perfectly followed God's law. The law of Moses was designed to reveal the sinful nature of man. Jesus was born under the law, but also lived sinlessly under it, ultimately fulfilling the law. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 say, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We see that Jesus is the image of God here. He is the one who we are to be like. We get to be God's image by being in Christ and allowing his righteousness to live in in and through us. Next up, we have Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. It says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So again, here, Jesus is described as being the image of God. And not only that, but being the creator of everything that has been created. And verses 13 and 14 also talk about how we are to live in God's kingdom by Jesus's redemptive work on the cross and because we are forgiven of our sins. And this is something that Tim Mackey from the Bible Project talks a lot about um, on their podcasts about the image of God. 
And it's this idea that humans need to be living out their true imageness of God by living according to the kingdom of God rather than worldly, human, and broken kingdoms. So as we had talked about in last week's episode, the image of God in humans is really, truly broken and marred by sin. But just as with everything else, God has a plan to restore his image in us. All right, now the big question for this episode. (laughs) Are both men and women created equally in the image of God? And I think that probably everybody in our audience is saying, well, of course they are right now. That's kind of what I said when I first saw this question. That's my response. But believe it or not, this is where things can get a bit fuzzy. So although everybody would say up front that, of course, both men and women are made in the image of God, the way that this actually gets played out throughout different Christian circles can add to or take away from the answer to this question. So let's start with the extreme. So some extreme complementarian views, complementarian would say you're kind of traditional, you know, men are the heads of the households, women are the help meets, and the man is supposed to work, the woman's supposed to stay at home, kind of that more traditional view. But we're talking right now, an extreme form of that. Um, Some extreme complementarian views would not directly say it, but would teach that the Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 27 passage says that men are kind of created in the image of God and women are created in the image of man. And this would kind of be putting women on a lower plane than men. um, Or some would say, well, because Adam was created first. So some would claim that because Adam was created first, women approach God through their husbands or the other male authority in their life. So because I'm a single person, single lady, my male authority would be my father. Um, many would use First Timothy chapter two verse thirteen as a support for this idea, and that verse says, "For Adam was created." Sorry, and this verse says, "For Adam was formed first, then Eve." The problem is that the creation story isn't about hierarchy; it's about relationship. If we were going to say that Adam is above Eve simply because he was created first, wouldn't we also have to say that all the animals are above humanity since they were created before Adam? But we also aren't arguing the opposite, that Eve is above Adam because she was created last. The idea that God made men, then he had a better idea, so he created a woman, that joke has no truth in it. And it's rather demeaning in both directions. (laughs) Basic hermeneutics, which is a fancy word that means interpretation of the Bible, is that we don't base core doctrine on a single obscure Bible verse. Um, Jen Wilkin, who's a Bible teacher, talks about this in her book, Women of the Word. There aren't any other Bible passages other than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that discuss man being superior in any sense to women. Now, there are descriptive passages that talk describe what happened, but not prescriptive passages saying this is what you should do. In Jewish law, a charge had to be brought against anyone based on the eyewitness testimony of two to three witnesses. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, Matthew 18, 16, and 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, that women didn't count as witnesses because they had no rights in that society. This is not something that God commanded, but instead in his grace, his law operated within the function of the ancient Near Eastern societies. And God's law protected and elevated women far more than the other pagan nations around Israel at the time. Another issue here is that if you look at the story of 
God interacting with humanity, God actually rarely picks the firstborn. If we're talking about primogeniture, the firstborn son inheriting everything, God doesn't actually do that. He picks the second a lot. He picked the second born um, with Jacob and Esau. He picked Isaac, who was the second born, instead of Ishmael, who was the firstborn. Even when Jacob had his 12 sons, God did not choose the firstborn to be the leader. He elevated Joseph's two children. Um, And you can see this even going on down through the line. God actually makes a practice of not picking the firstborn. David was the youngest in his family. Yep, there's another one. It's, it's so interesting when you actually think about it and go through the Bible stories. So I don't see that as being a viable reason to say that men are better or more image bearers than women. Yeah. And just to be clear, the reason we kind of explain the Jewish laws, because there are some people who would say, well, in that society, the society that lived under the Mosaic law, they just knew that women were second class citizens and operated as such. And they would say, you know, well, women in the Bible didn't have a say in X, Y, Z. And my point here with that little note is just to say that it's not something God encouraged. God didn't tell them, hey, women should be second best. Instead, in his grace, he was allowing his perfect law to operate within within an imperfect culture um, that Israel was a part of. And then, like Bethany mentioned, God's law actually went much further than other pagan laws and elevated women far more than the pagan nations around Israel as well. So that argument really doesn't hold up at all. Genesis 127, where God says that we are going to make man in our image, the word for man the first time is gender neutral and refers to mankind, not just we're going to make a male in our image. It says we are going to make humankind, mankind in our image. And then in verse 27, um, the word man is used again before differentiating between male and female. And I think that the order of this description is really important. When we read this passage here, I'll give us a little refresher. Actually, it says, so God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. So here, I think the order is really important. All humanity is made in God's image first, and then we are made male and female. So it's important to recognize that according to this verse, our gender is actually not the deepest part of who we are. It's not the most, um, it's not the most vulnerable, deep part of our, of our identity. Instead, we are children of God first. And this is a truth that Jesus also believed and affirmed. His interactions with people were not limited based on their gender. He interacted with men and women. And Paul also, um, in the time of the early church, did not limit his interactions to men, but he often mentions in his letters these female coworkers in, the, in ministry. Um, and he even bestows on them honor for them uh, according to their work in the Lord. We don't have a lot of time to dig dip deeper into this conversation. Bethany and I, like we, <laughs> we had a phone call earlier to just kind of plan some of the, our notes and we ended up just talking for an hour all about gender. Um, and we did not record that. <laughs> um, but this is a conversation that we are hoping to discuss in the future. We'll have to see kind of 
how the rest of the season plays out. Um, but it is something we would like to revisit and just not when we say discuss gender, we don't mean push feminism. That's not what we're talking about. Um, Bethany and I, we actually grew up in a pretty soft complementarian, uh, church. Yeah. So we're very comfortable with a complementarian idea. Um, ever since we were young, we both have just always wanted to be wives and mothers. Like we're fine with that. It's <laughs> like, whatever, it's not offensive to us, but it is something that we've started thinking more and more about and just questioning how much of that is biblical and how much is sort of, um, just expectations. Yeah. Expectations that have been put on people. And there are some topics like this one, even, even Imago Dei or other ones that have different views. We're totally fine recording and presenting the options as the options. We want you to be informed about them, but we don't usually take a side. I think that this is a topic that is so intrinsically important that we want to do more personal research and study before we bring that to you because it is so easy to put your own bias in. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we're speaking intelligently based on research, not just based on emotions or feelings or past experiences. Yeah, for sure. That all being said, we can say definitively that both men and women are created in the image of God equally. And because both are in the image of God yet have many differences, we can draw from this that God somehow has characteristics. And I don't know how this works. I'm not claiming (laughs) to know how this works. But God somehow has characteristics that are found in both men and women. I'm not saying that God is female. Some people take it too far, call God a woman and all this stuff. And like, no, thank you. But for example, many men are typically, and I say typically knowing that you can't just massively apply stereotypes, but men are typically thought of as more reserved emotionally. Yet women are typically more emotional. And God called both of these things good. So isn't it possible that God somehow has both of these characteristics perfectly in balance and in greater and deeper ways than humans ever could? I think that that's a question we need to ask. I'm just using emotion as an example, but there's a lot of different things, the nature versus nurture and the the whole protector versus, um, you know, uh, protector versus nurture and that whole conversation. All right. So at this point, we've been talking about the image of God. We haven't particularly defined it. We're about to get into some different views on what exactly is the image of God. What does it mean to be an image bearer? We're going to get into the first view in this episode. This is the substantial slash structuralist view of the Imago Dei. So um, Emily and I have different ways of prepping for um, researching. And one of the things that I did is I just sat down and wrote out what I had in my head with the image of God, questions that I had. And when I was in university, um, in my theology class, I was taught that the the image of God in humans is our um, emotion, intellect, and will. So the fact that we can feel emotions, the fact that we are intelligent beings, and um, the fact that we have the ability to choose. Those are the things that define the um, Imago Dei. And I didn't actually hear any of these other views. So um, this view, the structuralist view of the Imago Dei is the one that I was taught. So this would say that the mark of the Imago Dei is primarily the human ability to reason, which is what separates mankind from animals and other creations. Other marks of the Imago Dei include conscience, dominion, morality, spiritual awareness, emotions, personhood, etc. These have been put in as describing the Imago Dei by various different people. 
This view has been the dominant view in Western Christian thought, being published as widely accepted in the mid-1900s. This view originated with the theologians taking into account the philosophical, anthropological, and theological views of the Greek and Jewish thought leaders such as Philo and Aristotle. So philosophical would be the love of wisdom or learning about wisdom. Anthropological is human interactions over history. And of course, you know what theological means. Um, Of course, the early church was very much influenced by this Greek thought and this Roman thought. And then pairing that with the Jewish thought leaders would come up with this view specifically. Aristotle held the view that humans were animals with greater mental faculties. Example, reason. This view is still widely accepted by modern science. Humans are mammals, if you're going to classify them in the scientific world, and humans evolved from animals. This view was easy for Christians to adapt and project onto scripture, making the distinction of reason between mankind, being made in God's image, and animals, not made in God's image. And this points to the fact that God gave mankind dominion over everything else in creation. So early theologians like Origen and Irenaeus drew a clear distinction between the image of God and the likeness of God. And we have a few early church fathers. I'm just going to go through here and kind of brief you on their views. So Origen said that humans are made in God's image, but become like him through their own efforts. So there's a difference between you're inherently made in God's image, but then you actually become into his, you come into his likeness through your own efforts to be holy. Irenaeus said that humans are made in God's image, but being like God was lost in the fall. And then becoming spiritually mature brings one more into likeness to God. So kind of just dovetailing on uh, Origen's view there. Augustine went even more in detail. And he said that what makes man in the image of God is their mental capacity. So namely their memory, intellect, and will. Those three things were really important to Augustine. And then he actually took this a step further. And this is where things get like a little weird for me where I'm like, Augustine, (laughs) what happened there? You're doing so well. He said that these three attributes are significant because they exist in a Trinitarian nature just like the Trinity, (laughs) capital T. And then he actually even said that memory, intellect, and will correspond to the three members of the Trinity. Um, I don't know which one corresponded to which Trinity member. I didn't feel like I really needed to know. (laughs) But kind of the point here with memory, intellect, will being that they are of one essence, yet also distinct and interrelated. Then Augustine said that salvation is the primary way that the image of God in mankind is restored and that sanctification occurs gradually over time with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And Bethany, you were telling me, I think you already mentioned this as well, that this one view, Augustine's view, is specifically what you were taught at university. Yep. That's so interesting to me because researching, like there's six or seven different views and you weren't even just taught the one view, you were taught Augustine's specific Will, intellect, emotion. Yeah. His specific teaching on one specific view that yep. just seems really narrow to me. But when we get into the later views, um, it, they made a lot more sense to me when I first mm. heard them. I think I heard Bible project was the first one to bring it up, like listening to their podcast. And I was like, Whoa, this makes sense. Yeah. More than I'm excited this. to get to some of those too. Yeah. 
that will be next week. Yes. <laughs> um, but for now, we have Aquinas next. And he was really similar to Irenaeus that um, all humans fallen and redeemed are made in God's image, but that those who are redeemed are made more in God's image than those who have not been redeemed. And he also agreed that image referred to rationality, while likeness referred to one's righteousness and walking with the Holy Spirit. We also see this view um, mentioned in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, quote, God created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. We also have some issues with this view, and Bethany is going to discuss those now. So the first is that this view produces a dichotomy of mind and body. The mind is what makes us in God's image. All of those characteristics take place in the mind. And so the body is somehow lesser than, and this would come from the Greek influence on this view. If we're not careful, this can lead to a soft form of Gnosticism, which if you remember, is viewing the body as less important and therefore has can, can either be abused um, or neglected. If you want to learn more about Gnosticism, we actually did two episodes on this. Second is that this view is dehumanizing to people who do not have normal mental cap- capacities of healthy people. So these, this would include people with intellectual and or developmental disabilities or delays. If you think about somebody that functions maybe at the level of like a one-year-old their entire life, um, this view would, would look at them as less because they don't have those capacities. Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. I have a quote here from John Kilner. He's an ethicist and theologian. He says, We get into deep trouble if we think the image is lost, because if the fact that our fellow human beings are in the image of God is the basis for our treating them with dignity, then if we say that not every human being shares that image, then there goes our basis for ethical treatment of one another. Yeah, and I actually have a couple of examples of this, and they're both in history. Um, And actually, I just thought of a modern example as well as Bethany was talking. Our first is, we're going to talk about the Nazis. And that's I know kind of depressing. we lose, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought this was just a really good example of how this happened. So during world war two, you had a lot of Christians in Germany who held this view and they probably didn't realize it, but you see this, how they, this in how their lives played out. So there were many Christians, not all, um, but many Christians where, you know, they viewed Jews, the disabled community, homosexual individuals as not being as much in the image of God um, because of these, these issues. So you had, of course, the, the Gestapo rounding up these lesser desirable, um, less desirable groups of people. And you had a lot of Christians just stand by or even accept the propaganda that Jews were subhuman that they were a scourge on society and you had them um, just allow the Gestapo to take away people with disabilities and kill them or people who were homosexual. Um, And I think that that probably happened because like what allows you to accept that kind of propaganda is this view that 
you have to have a certain amount of intelligence or a certain be part of a certain ethnic group in order to be seen as the being in the image of God. If you truly believe that everybody was in the image of God, you would have probably kicked up a fuss about that. Yeah. And not been okay with it. And many did. Many did. Of course. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. A second example is a little bit further back in history, but sometimes still happens today. And that is black history in North America. The reason I think that you were able to have Christian slave owners go to church on Sunday and come home on Monday and whip their uh, black slaves is because they didn't view people of color as fully human. They believed that they didn't, and they believed this because they did not think that black people had the same intellectual capacities as white people. And of course, we see these horrifying cartoons that were drawn comparing black people to animals. And it's horrific, but because they viewed them as subhuman, they were able to treat them as not being made in the image of God. And by doing this, these groups of people completely denied the doctrine of the Imago Dei. The third example I just thought of as you were talking, Bethany, is abortion and how we believe that because a baby hasn't been born yet, it's not fully human. Because you mentioned uh, that you know a, an adult who has the mental capacity as a one-year-old might be not seen as being fully human, but I just thought of as, you know, abortion, we think that a child that hasn't been born is not fully human Mm -hmm. because it doesn't have the mental capacity yet, or it's not uh, living on its own, or it's not, you know, whatever, because it's still in utero. Like, however we define that, we... Uh, Yeah, and they they keep on moving it back, too. Yeah, and but it allows, that's what allows some progressive Christian groups to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and also abortion is okay. Yeah. And so I think that there's there's probably so many more examples in history, of course, um, where you have different people groups ab- abusing each other. And it's because of this intrinsic thing that we have where we say, I am more in the image of God than you. And I don't think many people would phrase it that way, but that's what's at the heart of these abusive um, things that happen throughout culture. And it was even codified in law in the United States. Like, in the law, a black person was three fifths of a person. That's what they counted for, yeah. In like legal voting or anything. Yeah, and we see that in ab- abortion too. It's yeah. not considered murder yeah. to kill a child in utero. Yeah. But as soon as that baby's born, it's considered murder because it's a crime against another image bearer. It's it's fascinating when you think about it. Mm-hmm. How it all actually comes back to theology. This this is why. We care about theology because what you believe actually impacts how you live and understanding what you believe and why you believe it helps you to love God better and image Christ better. So that is the first view. We have several more to go through and then a bit of a wrap up in episode three. We are going to leave you with some recommended resources. Lisa Hensley um, has an Instagram page. She is a Christian Bible teacher and thought leader who Emily and I both appreciate following. She has a highlight on her Instagram for gender. You can follow her at always Lisa Hensley um, on Instagram. We recommend taking a peek through that highlight, um, which is saved stories. 
We'll link this for you. We also have a academic paper. Um, you can find this if you search on the scholar.google.com web base. Um, you look up Imago Day in Christianity, the various approaches. This is by David K. Taurus. Um, Emily found this particularly helpful in fleshing out some of maybe the lesser known views and giving a better idea of what the image of God is and how that's looked at in academia. And with that, we will leave you. Um, We will talk to you next week as we finish up the image of God. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.